For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Have I ever told you about how I get all these incredible people to appear on this show? It's magic, kind of. So I've got all these post-it notes on the wall in my office and they map out like a wish list of interviewees and I look at them every day and I reckon it cements them somehow onto my brain. So I obsess over finding ways to reach them and persuade them to join me in these conversations and you know what, it seems to work. Case in point, this week's guest, Raj Patel. Now Raj is a clever clogs. He's got degrees from Oxford, the London School of Economics and Cornell. He's worked for the World Bank and the World Trade Organization, but he's also protested against them. I saw him talk last year and I was just a goner. I bought his latest book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, and I read it twice. It's all about colonial frontiers and their perpetuation the exploitation of nature, labour and energy and how the patriarchy and capitalism drive it all. So Raj wrote this with a co-author called Jason Moore. And here's a quote from it. They say, Capitalism is not a system where cash is everywhere, but rather one in which islands of cash exchange exist within oceans of cheap or potentially cheap natures. And they talk about cheap as a strategy, a practice, a violence that mobilises all kinds of work from the human to the animal to the botanical, for as little compensation as possible. I.e., someone or something always pays the price of too cheap. Does that sound familiar, maybe from the true cost? Yeah, because there are loads of parallels with the fashion system, how it can exploit workers and chew up nature. But don't expect doom and gloom here. This is a sparkling, thought-provoking, inspiring conversation that takes in everything from Gainsborough paintings to the best Indian tailoring. We start talking about activism and how bad news on top of bad news doesn't work. How sensualism and delighting in beauty and pleasure is really important and, of course, very relevant when we're talking about fashion or food. Raj is a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. And another one of his awesome books is all about the food world. It's called Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. We'll share some links. Also... He's currently finishing a doco filmed in Malawi and the US, which is showing how people can triumph over hunger and inequality and climate change and how they do it through reimagining the way they grow and cook their food. Hint, it involves getting men in the kitchen. Now, Raj tells me, as someone who was brought up in the British left, with the idea that if you were enjoying your food, you were doing it wrong, he loves the idea that pleasure should be democratised, that it's something everyone should have, rather than no one should because it's counter-revolutionary. 
This is why I wanted to talk with Raj. It's an interview thick with ideas and references and philosophy, history, colonialism. If you're into this kind of thing, after you're done with this one, I recommend you go back and take in episodes 59 with William McDonough, all about cradle to cradle, and episode 22 with Patagonia's director of philosophy, Vincent Stanley. And for more on fashion and colonialism, check out the episode recently with Sarah Ali. Next week's is a deep thinker too. Get ready to hear about how biophilic design can revolutionise our buildings. But thank you, Raj, for making time to talk to me when you were in Brisbane for the Griffith University's Integrity 20 conference. I took part in it again this year. We did this amazing schools workshop all about trees and nature and how we can reconnect. It's actually one of my favourite events in Australia. You can check out the speakers at www.integrity20.org. Now... Let's get our minds spun by Raj Patel. Raj, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. You know this is ostensibly a fashion podcast. I had heard tell, yes, Claire. Although we don't weigh ourselves down with only clothes, let's begin with them because... (laughs) (laughs) I hope you'll forgive me because I'm not going to start by talking about capitalism or Columbus or Cartesian binaries or the othering of nature. I want to talk about your jackets. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh... Comrades at home, I'm wearing Fab India um, because they are a group that uh, supports artisanal labourers and pays well. And it's good schmutter, what can I say? But when you told me that, I was delighted because last night I said, I met you last night and warned you that I was going to start with this. And I said, what are they? Because you've got this dashing dapper jacket line. I've seen them on stage. I'm seeing them now. Nero collar happening now. Yeah. Sleeveless. But then you said to me, Fab, and Fab is famous because it's ethical. Mm. It's like the Indian leader in sustainable and ethical supply chains, actually. Yeah. And uh, I think insofar as, you know, only shallow people don't judge by appearances, right? That's the Oscar Wilde line. And I mean, you know what else he said? Fashion is a form of ugliness so intolerable that they must change it every six months. Well, see, I mean, he was—he understood the critique of fast fashion even then. But clothes matter. We judge one yeah. another on how we first see each other, even if we say we don't. That's right. And I think that look, I come from a world of thinking about food quite a lot, and that makes me a bit different from my comrades who are like climate change activists. Because you can tell, like, the food activists and the climate change activists, because the food activists are sensualists. And we like pleasure. And the climate change activists are built of sterner stuff, I have to say, because they will just take bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, the food thing, that we delight in the beauty. Yeah, and to be quite fond of pleasure is is one of the things that characterises a lot of my comrades in the food movement. And, you know, as someone who was brought up on the on, in the British left, where, you know, if you were enjoying your food, you were doing it wrong, the idea that pleasure should be democratised, that, that it's something that, that everyone should have rather than no one should have because it's, you know, counter-revolutionary. I, I think that, that that idea is one that I've only come to embrace through the radical side of the food movement. And if that's true, then surely a pleasure, a sense of joy and sensuousness in the way that we look is also part of that. But it's interesting because the stereotype of the economist is not the man who cares about the line of his jacket. Perhaps I'm unfair, but I recently interviewed Sinead Burke, the activist. She was telling me about the thrill of going to the World Economic Forum wearing blue silk, pink lined Gucci. <laughs> but economists are famously grey suited and drab. Um, Am I wrong? No, I, I mean, I, and I think you're right that it is a, a male-dominated profession and that they are, in general, boring and quite full of themselves. 
But, I mean, the good news is that I'm not actually an economist. I mean, I was trained as one, but have uh, I was trained in a number of things. And now I, I do political economy and political ecology and filmmaking. But I've always found it risible that the economics profession could wield so much power and yet deny it in the same way that they, you know, that they clearly can afford to dress better than they do. Mm. All right, let's talk about the work that you do. In particular, an incredible book, which is how I came across your work. It's called A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, and you co-authored it with Jason W. Moore. It's very dense with ideas, but it's really easy to read and really accessible and absolutely riveting. What are those seven cheap things? Could you zip through them? In haste, they are nature, work, care, food, energy, money and lives. And what do you mean? Well, what we're doing is is showing how capitalism is a system that doesn't pay its bills. And in all of these seven ways, capitalism cheats and takes things from all of these seven things or creates them in certain ways so as to give us our cheap food or cheap T-shirts or whatever it is. I once heard you say that it was easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's a a line that uh, I think Frederick Jameson first said. Who's that? um, Oh, he's he's a, a British cultural critic. And the idea is just that, I mean, we're bombarded every day with what the apocalypse is going to look like, whether it's zombies or, you know, some sort of uh, Mad Maxi uh, future that, that awaits us all or nuclear holocaust or whatever it is. And we see this. It's very easy to go to the movies and watch that. What it's very hard to do is watch or see or live different ways of being with each other that isn't about exploiting one another. Name the last movie you saw that was about that, or film, or book, or whatever it is. And because we live in a world where we are told again and again that capitalism is the only show in town, increasingly we've come to believe it. And that's why our imaginations are our most subtle jailers in thinking about how we might emancipate ourselves, because we're trapped in certain ways of thinking that there is no alternative. And part of my work is both to show how uh, the bars of this prison are put together, but also to think about really existing examples of folk doing things differently. And, you know, whether it's something as, you know, I mean, as basic as fashion being done differently or fair trade coffee, for example, which, you know, I think you buy fair trade coffee because the alternative is the exploitation of children. Of course you buy fair trade coffee, but that's not going to change the world. But it is, it's a reminder, a promissory note of how the world might be different, where we don't naturally and easily exploit children through our purchases. You suggested that we feel like this is the only game in town, but that's because it goes back so far. Now, when I think about the history of capitalism, I always think, oh, well, Industrial Revolution, that's where we got into this mess. But your book takes it right back to colonialism. Christopher Columbus is a useful embodiment of these seven cheap things, right? In the United States, uh, we still have Columbus Day, and uh, it's celebrated in a number of countries in Latin America. Well, I live in Australia, and I mean, fast forward, but we're still celebrating all that Captain Cook rubbish as well. Oh, exactly. But Columbus was worse, if you can imagine that, because he, before he sailed the ocean blue, he was involved in trade from, say, uh, Madeira to Genoa. uh, And Part of what, what we do in the book is tell the story of Madeira. Now, you may have heard of Madeira through its... A holiday resort, says me. Somewhere that people go to retire in gentility. And then you tell this story, this brutal story of the sugar industry. Well, so this is the, the latest incarnation of Madeira. I mean, Madeira, I first came across as a kind of booze. But that's because I'm British and you know, this is how we compass the world. The Madeira wine, it's a kind of fermented... I mean, it's a, it's a fortified wine. Yeah. yeah. But it was a place that was transformed by Portuguese colonists um, into 
a zone in which you could get the, the first big industrial uh, food commodity out from there to Europe. And that commodity was sugar. Now, in order to take Madeira, which means the island of wood, right? When they first saw it, it was covered in trees. And what they did is essentially turn those trees into initially lumber, but then they turned it into fuel. And they, they turned this nature into cheap energy. And they used that fuel to process sugarcane. And in order for the sugarcane to grow, really, you needed to also rechannel water across the island. So they, they, they had some very sophisticated hydrology on the island to keep the sugarcane watered. What sort of year was this or years did this take place? So this over? is in the, the mid 1400s. So, as we know, Columbus made it over to, to the, the Americas in 1492. But before that, in the 1460s, 70s and 80s, there was you know, the, the sort of colonial exploitation of Madeira happening. But the Portuguese were, were busy, quote, discovering lots of different places that they could then take over. And they were bringing uh, slaves from North Africa to work on the sugar plantations, you know, cheap labor. They were bringing families over because you know those slaves needed care and uh, having women was part of... Uh, exactly. Women were also a source of new slaves and it was, you know, I mean the utter sort of dehumanization of the enslaved people was part of this process. So, and in that uh, process they basically cut down every tree on the island? That's right, yeah. So, so g- give it 75, 80 years and Madeira is, you know, a famous traveller comes to the island and says, well, why do you call it Madeira then? Um, there aren't any trees here at all. And it didn't take long to burn through this island. And and now the island is not covered in, in trees. If you look at it on Google Earth, you can see that, that there's you know, a little bit of, of original forest left, but most of it's either you know, new growth or part of the, the tourist economy. But this was exploitation of nature. It was exploitation of humans. Mm. But it was also the beginning or could be seen as the beginning of this binary. Can you talk us through that, this idea of there is the powerful man on one side and then everything else? So th- one of the, the, the ideas that we explore in this book is about one of the most important divisions in the modern world between nature on the one hand and society on the other. And it's it's an odd binary because, you know, I mean, every civilization has some relationship to the things it eats and the things it kills and the, the, the way that it's connected to the web of life. But the idea of society and nature is one that's particularly useful for capitalism because what, what it allows is the idea that there's nature out there and, you know, initially nature is indigenous people and, uh, you know, all their crops and uh, the wildlife and the fish and the fowl and the flora. And all of this is fair game because they are part of nature. In fact, well, you know, the, the, some of the original terms for indigenous people from the Spanish colonists is naturales, right, naturals. And that idea that, that there's nature and here's society over here. And really, who's part of society? It's usually white men. And then it's propertied uh, white men and then propertied, you know, and, and and then in the end, perhaps the working class, then occasionally women, possibly slaves, and you know, possibly people of colour. And that pro- that general sort of expansion of who's in society doesn't happen naturally. There's nothing unfolding there that's, uh, you know, magic. It's, it's a bit because people fight. It's also those very problematic words and ideas around conquering, mm. taking and plundering. You know, if you look at Columbus, that's what was going on there. Yeah. But then that's what we're still doing to nature and anyone who is outside of the power. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And and that's why Columbus is so useful. You know, think today of the modern Columbus. The modern Columbus would be a man who 
is able to sweet-talk bankers into giving him scads of cash and promises uh, new frontiers, which we, he will colonise and bring back precious resources. And he'll pay his workers very badly and will fall afoul of unions and essentially you know, have this sort of whiff of chauvinism about him that may come about, that, that we will hear much more about that. Uh, it's the as, same uh, thing. Yeah, I mean, Tell it's like about- Jeff Bezos or someone. Oh, yeah. like, or Elon Musk. They're doing exactly or the same thing. Or even Elon Musk. Yeah, um, because what does Elon Musk want to do? He wants to colonise Mars. Space, yeah. yeah. He literally wants to, I mean, he uses the term like colonisation. It's a good thing. You know, it, it work, it's worked so well for so many people and we need to do more of that. But again, it's about talking bankers into funding things, finding new frontiers, which is sort of the other idea that we have about capitalism. It's always about finding frontiers. So whether Madeira or the New World or Australia or wherever it is, that the hunt is always on for the new frontier that you can exploit and turn into money. Before we get off Columbus, can you just tell us that story about a part in his writings where he talked about appreciating... The wonder That's of right. Yeah, so, so, you know, he, he's writing to Ferdinand and Isabella, his you know the, the the Spanish monarchs who bankrolled his trip, and he he says there are so many wondrous plants and animals here, and it gives me great sorrow that I do not know how much they are worth. And, and that's you know, how the, he saw it. Yeah, it's just like, oh, it's, it's really pretty, but what a shame that I don't immediately see dollar signs here because I bet this is worth a pretty penny and I, I want to go for the most expensive thing, but he doesn't know what it is. I often wish this podcast was videoed so you could see my face and my face <laughs> right now, I think it's a picture. <laughs> We're recording this at the Integrity 20 Festival in Brisbane, which is a fantastic event that I spoke at last year. You're speaking today about the food system. Yesterday you talked to kids. How amazing. Do you enjoy that? I did. And sometimes I get distressed because, you know, here are teenagers who are facing a a world where that's radically different from the one that you and I grew up in and are, you know, looking at the sixth extinction. They're looking at climate change. And they know. I mean, their level of awareness is very high. They are aware, but their ability to access ways of managing that are fairly limited. Uh, And so... I'm sometimes very depressed how, you know, out of the mouth of a 16-year-old, I'll hear an opinion I just heard from the head of the Confederation of, you know, food businesses in in America. Oh, really? And, I mean, I, I love folk like Greta Thunberg and the, the generation of activists who are actually pointing at something rather different. But it's important to remember that not all people are like Greta. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the first time that I saw you speak was at the Sydney Opera House. And after that session, I was like, one day Raj is coming on this podcast. And lo, it is now. It has come to pass. <laughs> but you opened with this very provocative question and you said, who here believes that in times of hardship, jobs ought to go to men? Tentative hand up? No, come on. <laughs> Why do you ask that? Well, because it's a question that's asked on something called the World Values Survey, and different parts of the world answer differently. So, for example, two uh, percent of Swedes agreed with the statement that you know, in times of hardship, jobs should uh, preferentially go to men, whereas ninety nine point six percent of Egyptians thought that. And initially, there's you know, there's a boo hiss uh, in the audience, and then you have to remember that that. It might be economically rational if everyone is poor and a husband and wife are struggling to put food on the table and there's the option of a low-paying woman's job or a high-paying man's job, then you want the money. It's not, I mean, everyone acknowledges that sexism is bad, but if you need the cash, you need the cash. So if you take income out of the equation, what are the other reasons why sexism exists in society? And uh, You had a multiple choice offer of four options. I can't remember what they all were, but I remember what the answer was. Well, the answer was (laughs) plows. That in, In a gold standard journal of economics, one of the important findings is that one of the things most associated with 
inequality between men and women, looking back 200 years uh, across different societies, is whether there is a plow uh, or a tradition of plowing in agriculture. And so the interesting question is, what's the plow got to do with all of this? And the answer is that the plow is a technology that accompanies ways of owning land and of using the land for monoculture, so for growing just one crop, whether that's wheat or cotton or whatever it is, and turning that into a commodity. And at the same time as we transform relations on our relationships to land and to nature, those relationships have also transformed the way that households work. And part of the the talk was was using uh, some art to actually demonstrate how it is that these unequal gender relations mattered and how, how it is that they're still with us today. You mentioned art, and now I get to talk about fashion even more sorry <laughs> can't stop myself you showed a picture a portrait a Gainsborough portrait of who was it Mr and Mrs Andrews and he painted it in 1750 and but initially... I remember it very clearly because she has this wonderful blue oh, it's silk fantastic. dress yeah. it's the panniers so if listeners don't know what that is think about costume drama when those hooped side skirts made women of a certain class's dresses so wide they could barely get through the door Whereas her husband is wearing hunting gear. And it's not just what he's wearing. I mean, a hunting gear is, is pretty informal for a portrait. But Gainsborough has him wearing hunting gear where it's only one button is done up. So he clearly, he's wearing the clothes in such a way that communicates to everyone that he doesn't give a fuck. It's absolutely clear that he is the master of everything there. And that kind of, you know, he's slouching, right? I mean, he's, he's propped up against a chair. And, and this formal portrait, look at him, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't have give to a fuck. care. But there's look no at his wife, isn't she, or... isn't she lovely? And she's wearing silk. And I mean, look at her shoes. She, I mean, she's clearly, there's, there's no mud on She's posed, very yes. pr- sort of... Ramrod straight, as yeah. opposed to him, who's, you know, he's, he's at an angle. And his dog's looking up at him adoringly. And he's got a gun next to him. And he's got all the land. He's and the lord of all he surveys, and he can do exactly, exactly what he likes. And in that painting, the idea is that he is the lord of his wife. And that relationship of domination applies both to nature and to the workers who have been paid and sent away and to his relationship in the home. Do you think that Gainsborough thought that when he conceived of it? I know you can't tell, but do you think that or do we read it that way now? But it is unusual to see him in that. It is unusual. I mean, I, I don't think he liked his subjects very much. He's, ah. he, he's and, and there's evidence to suggest that he knew them before he was asked to paint them. And the painting isn't finished. There's an unpainted bit on the skirt of Mrs. Andrews. And it's hypothesised that what would have gone there was either some needlework or possibly a son, if she had... Oh, because that's what women do. We either look yeah. after some children or we just sew something right, pretty. Right, there we go. Yeah. Indoors. <laughs> but it wasn't finished. And we don't know why. Okay, around that time, we had the mechanisation of the world, let's say. So factories, but also farming. Can you tell us what happened with the commons and the loss of the commons and come back to the plough? Yeah, uh, but the idea of the factory, just to get us back to Madeira again. I mean, Madeira was organised as a very intensive factory. You know, we often think of factories as you know, things with looms in them. But the fields of Madeira where you're growing sugarcane and where you're ploughing the furrows and you're you know, planting these crops are very much about a system of, of intensively managed industrialization uh, and productivity. 
And in order for that to happen in Europe, you know, where you, you, you can't just go colonise Europe because that's where you're from. In, instead, what you do is transform the system that predates capitalism, which is feudalism, where you have land on which peasants can run their cattle and in various ways in which women who are peasants are also able to make an income from dairying, for example. And the, what capitalism does is privatise that common mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, the capacity and space for women to be able to dairy, for example, becomes much more limited. And it's in that moment with the arrival of the plough as a technology of productivity and with the enclosure of the commons that you see women and men's wage rates diverge. So either get in the parlour and sew or, I don't know, the poorhouse for you. I'm interested in the commons. There's quite a lot Hmm. of talk now around how we might revive that idea. Obviously not the physicality of the land, I suppose, it's too Hmm. hard. But have you been listening to people think about how we might bring the commons back or reform society that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and a lot of my anarchist friends are very big on the idea of the commons, right? And one of the many tragedies... is it metaphorical or is it actually physical? No, I mean, so, you know, one of the the spaces that has just been sacrificed by Donald Trump in the withdrawal of US troops and the banishing of the Kurds from Mm. northern Syria is Rojava. And this was a place that was run on anarchist principles in which there were sort of worker cooperatives and collectives uh, and which were absolutely about uh, people commoning together to survive. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment and refer listeners to the episode that we did with Tim Flannery in series two, where he talks about the meaning or the true meaning of anarchy and explains why he is an anarchist. Because I think that maybe some people have confusion because we use that word anarchist, like we think about punks and in the modern vernacular, it's lost its meaning. But Maybe listen back to that episode and perhaps, if you haven't got time, Raj, one sentence, what does anarchy mean? Uh, It means that you don't like the state very much, but you do like the idea of people governing themselves collectively. Mm. All right, come back to this mechanisation as it played out during the Industrial Revolution. I did some research and got excited because, Raj, when you talked about Jethro Tull's seed drill, my immediate thought was, okay, around the same time, I know all about this. There was the spinning jenny. It was James Hargreaves, and that was 1764. Then I did a bit of Googling and was like, what other big inventions characterise the Industrial Revolution and may or may not have pertained to fashion? And I found out that... One of the first mechanised factories was actually a silk factory that was built along the river at Derwent by some guy called John Lom. It was in 1721, but that was 300 people employed in this place. It was a silk throwing factory. He'd hmm. seen the ones that happened in Italy that hadn't been mechanised. He figured out how to use water power to do that. So fashion was kind of deeply embedded in this whole industrialization of work. Yeah, uh, I mean, and it was because... And although I didn't know about the, the silk factory, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to find out more. So now. was I. I was like, yes. yes. <laughs> Actually, we'll share a link. It came from a website called Interesting Engineering, and it's titled 27 Industrial Revolutions That Changed the World. But it, it doesn't surprise me to that extent that it's silk, because sugar was a luxury commodity. It was just like silk was, and it was connected to these chains of trade that stretched from Madeira and you know the, the far west all the way to China. Um, and those circuits of exchange have always been very important in the past 2,000 years of human history. Also luxuries that are now supposedly <coughs> democratised. Yes, um, and in the case of sugar, um, you know, far too democratised. And it, it, if you want to have a diet that's free of sugar and its cognates. In fact, you need to be pretty rich uh, because to, to be able to afford to eat 
food that isn't ultra processed. Um, you know, we find ourselves at the the ultimate sort of democratization of this once luxury good. But what's also interesting about that story of factories is that workers always struck back. And a part of our, you know, our history of the world in Seven Cheap Things is that it's a history of people fighting back. It's always fighting back. And that's the hope that we're trying to share with this book. So, for example, you may have heard of Luddites. Yeah, Who are? L- the Luddites. loom smashers. Exactly. The story's pretty simple, that, that although they, they have been mischaracterized as people who hate technology, in fact, they were savvy you know, fashion workers, right? They smashed the looms not because they hated the technology, but because they wanted to be paid more. And they were just organising against... Early uh, organising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's for, for dignity and good wages in the fashion industry. And so to be a Luddite, I think it's something one ought to be proud of. Uh, and Absolutely. Because it is about workers reclaiming their ability to organise. And if you, if you have to smash a machine or two to get the boss to pay attention, so be it. Last night, Raj, we had a conversation about the current state of the fashion industry in Bangladesh. And there is a passage in your book where you talked about the percentage of the profits that go to the chicken workers. Mm. And I'd ask you, how much do you think is the percentage of the retail price of a T-shirt that goes to the garment worker? And, uh, and you told me it was 4%. 4%. Yeah. It really struck me that, that the people who were working in the fashion industry were a generation ago working on the land. And what has happened there? But we've seen the, the concentration of, of land in the hands of a few people. We're seeing um, shrimp farming, industrial shrimp farming, compromising the, the ability of people to be able to farm properly. We're seeing climate Mass change. Mass movement to the cities looking exactly. for anything that will pay for food in your mouth. Right, there we go. And, and in fact, you know, Bangladesh, because it's so low-lying, climate change is really affecting people already. And so, you know, the, the move to, to cities is part of it. And then, But also th- crushing of industrial action initiatives and making sure that people can't organise and sacking workers en masse for daring to speak out. And, and that's very interesting because that's just the government trying to increase the ease of doing business. Um, for, for listeners who don't know, there is an index called the Ease of Doing Business Index. Is that? Yeah. You know, countries compete to show how easy it is to do business there. New Zealand's number one uh, at the moment and Singapore's number two. And there are places, uh, India is trying to break into the top 50. And one of the ways it's doing that is by loosening environmental regulations and loosening the, the capacity of workers to organise. But behind this is a longer history of Bangladesh and its debt. So what we were talking about yesterday was how it was that this is the industry, this is the the way that Bangladesh gets to pay off a debt that was come by very unjustly, right? I mean, the, the World Bank is lending to the country hand over fist, and with these lending conditions come stipulations about how you need to shrink your public sector and you need to invest less in uh, education and, and you know, a range of things that compromise the future of the country. And then, then the World Bank turns around and says, well, you've got to pay the debt now. And, you know, what are you going to do? We advise you to go into fashion because you can always export that and pay us in the hard dollars that you will earn through the fashion industry. There are 4 million garment workers or thereabouts in Bangladesh and very, very few of them earn a living wage. And we always say in this conversation, someone always pays the price for too cheap, which feeds into the title of your book, Raj. I want to just come on to the food stuff. You're about to talk today at this event about food. You've done a lot of work in this space. I heard you tell a wonderful story about how if we turn the idea of patriarchy on its head and give power to the hands of women, we can completely change the way that a society is ordered, that we feed ourselves. It was a case study. Malawi? Malawi, that's right, yeah. And I know that you've been making a documentary about it. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, so the idea here is that if 
it's true that the plough is associated with patriarchy and you know, modern agriculture and monoculture and ways of growing things that damage the environment and you know, deplete the soil and don't do much for human well-being. How do you fix that? I mean, you know, if we threw away our ploughs, things wouldn't necessarily get any better. So the story that, that I've been documenting with a number of colleagues uh, is something called the Soils, Food and Healthy Communities Project. If you're interested, you can find out at soilandfood.org. But the idea here is that they organize farmers to be able to become scientists. So the farmers themselves start experimenting with what helps build the soil and what helps them survive climate change. But the farmers also then discover, well, look, even though we've got these fantastic crops, infant malnutrition may not go down unless we also make sure that people get to eat what's getting in the way of that? Well, it's domestic violence and inequality. How do we tackle that? Well, we have to call it out and we have to organize around it and we have to get men to cook. And in the course of this documentary, which we filmed over seven years, we oh, wow. watch, so, uh, we've watched men go through this. So you've seen whole community change over Absolutely. a long time. The village is called Bwabwa and the biggest nearest town is Mzuzu, uh, so northern Malawi. And soon you will be able to see this film on a something near you in 2020, we're hoping. But the idea and the, the thing that really matters here is not that they tackled climate change or the patriarchy or the uh, you know, soil degradation, but they did it all at the same time. That you can't make these big seismic shifts in society unless you do it all in a way that everyone recognizes is just, Right. The moral of the story here is not that you seemingly impossible things can't be done, but that if you're going to do impossible things, it has to be in a way that levels the playing field, that really taxes the most powerful. In this case, make sure that men do stuff and that the patriarchy is pulled down at the same time as we transform farming and do, do a range of other things. And that story about, look, we can't make the transition to a just economy around climate change unless we take down the 1%, you know, unless the 1% are made to pay. Because otherwise no one's going to do it. But in this case, women got together and yeah. reformed the way that they fed the community, grew crops, and indeed interacted yeah, with each other. Yeah. No, but just changed the whole dynamic, didn't they? That's right. So what did they do? So they had this, they were growing one crop and the soil was depleted. Right, they were growing corn and that monoculture was, you know, and they were told by the government, here's the monoculture you need and here are the fertilisers and here are the pesticides and it was both expensive and it was damaging the soil. And then they started growing corn and beans and squash and so they increased the, the total amount of protein by 50% and they also... But all together, so diversity of crops. Diversity of crops, but also the diversity of action at the same time. And I think both of these, I mean, there's a very deep lesson there about how it is that we can change society. So it's possible, but it needs to be done in a way that everyone can buy in. Where does this come from in you? Did you come from a family of strong women or a family of anarchists or a family... No, uh, you didn't, no I'm did a you? mutant. Yeah, no, the, 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 my family are, are very much you know, on the political right in ways that I'm not. So no, can't really explain it. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I do have a moment of being radicalised. When, when I was five, uh, we were in the land of my ancestors in India, and we stopped at a traffic light and it was raining in the monsoon. And there was a girl knocking at the door saying, please give us some money, I'm hungry. And I so looked you've gone up, on holiday there. Or yeah, yeah, we've gone to visit family. And I was looking up at her, and she was sopping wet, and we were dry. And I just lost my shit. I started screaming, and I was like, "Mom, Dad, why? Why is she outside, and why are we inside? Why is she hungry, and we're not? Why have we got money, and we and she doesn't?" And they answered that by sort of cracking down the window and sticking out some cash. But I carried on asking that question. When we got back to London, I you know, rented toys to my mates, and we we sent the money for famine relief. But since then, you know, I've, I've been asking that question and uh, and I will continue asking that question because it seems to me the one that doesn't have a good answer but lots of bad ones. 
you know, hundreds of years later, we're still living under this system. You said before that the bumper sticker is the, it's harder to imagine an end to this system than it mm. is to imagine the apocalypse or the zombies yeah, coming yeah. on the end of the world. Two questions. Where does hope lie for you? Mm. And what do you think is the pathway for us to change it? The fact that all along the way people have fought back, whether it's indigenous people, whether it's women's rights organisers, whether it's the civil rights movement in the United States, whether it's ecologists defending spaces from the, the mining industry, whatever it is, there's always been resistance. We have often been made to forget that. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of work now around the New Deal in the United States, which happened... The Green New Deal. Oh, the original, no, so the original like New the FDR New yeah, Deal. Yeah, because, you know, here in the early 1930s, there's no good place in the world where capitalism works. It's a disaster. And Europe is like, well, we're going to try fascism then. And obviously, you know, China and the Soviet Union are like, well, no, communism is the way. And America's shit scared that it's going to go communist. The idea is that there are moments where the way that society worked transformed much more toward equality. But and we don't remember those in it, our history. We have been made to forget. History. Now we're in a moment where the fascists are on the rise and we're facing this climate emergency. And what I'm also seeing in the United States, for example, is a bunch of people unionising and using the unions to fight for something really dramatically radical. So the Green New Deal is something I'm, I'm enthused about. And you know which union is in the front line of fighting for that? The Air Stewards Union, uh, the Flight Attendants Union. Because, first of all, they're the ones who are you know, getting hurt because of the, you know, the increasing levels of turbulence in, in flight. Oh, really? Um, but they're the ones who are like, look, we understand that this is our job and we don't want to destroy the planet through our job. We want to move towards, you know, a sustainable aviation sector. But we also want to move to a world where everyone gets paid well to do the work of care and of repair. So you're saying that through history we have had periods through which there was a lot of agitation for change and that mm. change did happen, but through the way that we storytell or the way that we want to frame society now, we tend to, like scrub that stuff out and yeah. focus on the bad stuff. Do you feel hopeful then? Do you think that there is... I have to say the Green New Deal is something that makes me feel hopeful in a way I haven't for 20 years. You know, the, the last time I felt that there was movement and possibility was when I was involved in protests against the World Trade Organization in, in the, the late 90s and early 2000s. And there was a moment there where, again, you know, workers were, were powerful and the ideas of sustainability were, were starting to matter. And then after 9-11, all this kind of dissent was crushed. And we found ourselves in you know, the long shadow of that. But right now, I think the climate emergency is making itself felt in such a way that it's not a conversation that can be avoided. And I think workers and unions independently have realised, look, this has been a shit deal. And it's, you know, we find ourselves as the precariat surviving on, on nothing. And we, we don't want an economy of you know, Uber drivers and service workers. We want and demand better. And that kind of moment, I think, can go two ways. I mean, it can either lead to fascism and like, well, good jobs for us. And yeah, I mean, we talk about Donald Trump denying climate change. But imagine if he didn't. Imagine if Donald Trump you know, fully understood what climate change was and that's what the wall was for. The wall is to stop other people having what Americans have. Oh, that's, a far, that's a far darker future, but it's one that you kind of see now. I mean, you know, even in America, we, we have discussions about uh, zero carbon immigrant detention facilities, which... You know, you, oh, I mean, you, you couldn't make it up. No, right? you couldn't. Um, so, you know, those kinds of conversations are happening. And that's, you know, that's the dark side of this, this kind of moment of sustainability. So what is the pathway out? And I know that when I asked that question, I said, I understand you can't just tell us in a sentence, but 
Do you see an end to capitalism coming? If you're excited about the Green New Deal, do you think that could be the way that we well, reform you know, the I mean, structure? I, I think it, you know, the answer to all of this is always pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I mean, the oil company's not going to give up easily. And you, I mean, you, you've, you've seen the power of big food and big, the sort of titans of the fashion industry resisting your calls for sustainability. But at, at the same time, you see what it is that people who organise can do and how it is that you can make transformations. And I think right now we're, we're at a, an important time. I, I think that there's much more possibility in the way that societies are falling apart in different ways uh, than we've had for, for a while. I, I mean, I don't imagine it's going to be easy, but I, I prefer to respect the work that I see my comrades in Malawi do, or you know, the work of building communities that happens you know, in northern Syria, rather than say, well, no, that was, that was always bound to fail, because that, that's a better way to live. A better way to live indeed. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you